When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. Earlier this month, the United States did not ace its credit test. To unpack this story and give us bonus insight as a recovering finance bro, I'm talking to Sean O'Malley, the chief editor and creator of the popular investing newsletter, We Study Markets. Let's get into it. Sean O'Malley, welcome to Money Rehab. Hey, thanks for having me. Earlier this month, Moody's cut the ratings of 10 banks and named six large banks as potential downgrades. This is a story really, I think, worth breaking down for the Money Rehab audience. So first, for any listeners who don't know, can you introduce them to Moody's? Yeah. So Moody's is one of the three major credit rating agencies. So you'll you'll hear that get thrown around a lot. And the other two are S&P and Fitch. And the role that they serve is basically just rate companies and governments financial health. And so investors rely on them for sort of providing a barometer of, you know, okay, how risky is this investment? You know, if we're going to lend money to Apple or the U.S. government, all of those entities get a credit rating from those big credit rating agencies. You know, it's something that is maybe a little bit in financial jargon, and most people are probably not paying attention to what the ratings agencies are doing. But from sort of a plumbing of the financial system perspective, they're really important. That can give you a really quick okay, they have a triple A rating. So they're probably going to pay back their debt and there is not a lot of financial risk there. Whereas a lower rating obviously would tell you there's more risk. Yeah, I would love to get into the rating system. I have seen a ton of memes by like Finfluencers out there being like, (laughs) yeah, you give me a credit score, you should get one too. Well, the United States does. And that's essentially what this is. So This is also on the heels of Fitch downgrading the credit rating for the United States from triple A to double A. That is not an upgrade. That is a downgrade. But I think it's helpful to just walk us through the rating system. What are the grades? Yeah, and I think you put that really well. But, you know, I mean, the basic way the rating system works, it goes triple A, double A, single A, triple B, double B, single B, triple C, and so on. And then it ends at D, which basically just sends for default. So definitely do not want to be in D. But it's really similar to basically like the credit score that we all get. And it's this sort of barometer, like I said, of financial health. And, you know, honestly, there's a kind of an important question here of how much does it matter? It's kind of like, you know, is it really a big difference if you have a 750 credit score or a 770 credit score? So, you know, to what you alluded to a little bit there, this U.S. government downgrade, you know, how much does it matter to go from, let's say, a perfect AAA to the second highest, which is a AA plus, And then, you know, in between those main letter grades, there's these plus or minuses that are sort of, you know, a double A plus is better than a double A and a double A minus is a little bit better than a double A. And you can really get into the weeds into it. But like I said, it's really just a, a nice barometer of whoever's looking to borrow money, their financial health. 
Yeah, we had the CEO of FICO on the show, and he said he didn't have a perfect credit score. I think he said his assistant had a better credit score than he did because it's about financial habits and not necessarily about wealth. So how you pay your bills back on time or not. And it kind of works the same way for governments. The United States isn't the only country that has a credit rating. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the ratings agencies, I mean, everywhere from you know your local city that you live in to state governments, federal governments all around the world, companies, they all get credit rating agencies. And it's a great business to be in because everybody needs your rating and you kind of have this, you know, there's three of them. So there's almost this oligopoly on being able to provide those ratings. And when you're investing in international markets, the acronym PIGS comes up with Portugal and Greece and Spain and kind of talked about within the financial world as lower credit rated countries. And so those types of countries that have had financial issues will have triple B or lower. And you also mentioned corporates have credit scores as well that follows the same rubric. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you think of what the hierarchy of credit ratings might be. There's actually only a few companies in the US that have a perfect triple A credit rating. I think last I checked is Johnson and Johnson and Microsoft. So it's kind of funny now to think that I think Johnson and Johnson has a better credit rating than the US government. And it's funny too, because we there are a lot of states now that have better credit ratings than the US government. I live in Virginia and Virginia has a triple A credit rating. But now the U.S. government has a double A credit rating. And it seems kind of absurd that there could be that divergence there. Yeah, I think at the margin, it doesn't totally matter. But if there is a big downgrade, then that's a big deal. But it works the same way as a personal credit score works, right? Like a seesaw. You know, the higher the credit score, the lower the interest rate and vice versa. So if you're going to go invest in Portugal or some shitty company, then you're going to want more interest in exchange for taking that risk on. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, as you said, the higher rated companies or governments that are issuing debt and trying to raise money from investors, you're going to give them a lower interest rate, you know, if they have a high credit rating, because they're seen as being a really high likelihood to pay back their money. It's similar to if you went to get a mortgage or an auto loan and maybe you have a lower credit score yourself, you're going to get a higher interest rate because, you know, the person or bank, whoever it is lending you money thinks, you know, okay, there's more risk here. And, you know, as that kind of cliche phrase and finance goes, with more risk comes more return. And so, yeah, if people think that you're not as likely to pay back their money, kind of counterintuitively, they charge you a higher interest rate and make it harder for you to pay back your money. But uh, I digress. (laughs) No, you don't. It's a really important point. And we saw this when all the government debt ceiling stuff was going on treasuries rose, which are bonds issued by the U.S. government. So the interest rate became higher because there was, I mean, let's be honest, the United States is not going to collapse. And so uh, (laughs) we would have much more Armageddon issues if that were the case. And I don't think anyone would be cashing in their treasuries at that point. But we saw bond yields go up because of that, right? Like the inverse effect. Yeah. And that's kind of a good rule of thumb. And so bond prices and yields have this inverse relationship. So if people are worried and they're selling off bonds and the yields are actually going to rise. And that's something that we saw happen with this whole May debt ceiling kind of fiasco that happens every few years. You're sort of structurally undermining the trust that people have in their government. You know, if this thing that we might take is really holy or, you know, sacred, you know, our federal government and this is what's 
running the country and then they can't even pay their own debts, you know, as a household or an individual or a company, what are sort of the ramifications of that? And it's a self-imposed wound. There's really no reason why the U.S. government shouldn't be able to pay back its debts. And that's something we talked a lot about in the newsletter this May. It's really this kind of congressional argument of like every year, every couple of years, they take it down to the wire and it's this big debate of, you know, should we raise the debt ceiling? Should we not raise the debt ceiling? But ultimately, you know, as long as you're able to raise it, there's going to be demand for basically lending the U.S. government money that it can use to pay down its debt. So, you know, technically, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to. But when you get into these partisan standoffs, that really hinders sort of people's trust in the government as an institution. And I think we saw that reflected with this most recent credit downgrade. But it's also not the first time that the U.S.'s debt has been downgraded either. I think trust is an important word to use for why these ratings matter. You know, at Money Rehab, we're all about the retail investor or a newbie investor. Why are these ratings important if I'm just starting to invest and how do I find them? Yeah, well, you know, I would probably say for the average person, they don't matter a ton. I know that I didn't look at credit ratings a whole lot. It's really more for, let's say, on the bond investing side, people that are trying to determine the likelihood of paying back debt, whether a credit rating matters. But of course, you know, when you're, let's say, looking at stocks to invest in, you want to be mindful of how profitable and how financially sound that company is. So you can probably draw like a pretty strong correlation between blue chip companies with really sound finances are more likely to be a better steward of your money. And when you think of it, and like this is kind of, the Warren Buffett way of thinking about investing. But when you really think about it, that you're buying a stock, you are trusting a company to manage your money for the long term, and, and you're taking an ownership stake in that business. And so when you take that kind of partnership and build that relationship with a company, you want to make sure that you know they're financially sound. And so the credit ratings are a really great way to assess that. And like I said, this like kind of financial barometer buzzword I keep throwing around, it's a good way to think of it. You know, you shouldn't just say, I'm only going to invest in AAA companies. Those are the ones with the highest credit ratings because, you know, obviously there's a lot more to consider, but it's a factor to be mindful of. And there's this cutoff, you know, when you think about credit ratings between what's called investment grade, which is higher than triple B, triple B and above. And then below that is basically called junk. And it doesn't mean that all of those investments are junk, but it kind of, again, is a signal telling you that, okay, you know, a company with a junk rated credit rating below that triple B cutoff is probably not as financially sound. There's some sort of structural economic or business risk that might be weighing on them. And it's just something you want to be mindful of. And so you should probably try to expect a higher rate of return from that. And if you invest in a more risky junk rated company, and it's reforming just as well every year as let's say Apple, which is one of the highest credit ratings, you should probably just own Apple because you're taking a lot fewer of those other business and financial risks. And just to do a quick dictionary note, <laughs> as we call them, blue chip companies being like the best, most sound companies out there. We just try to unpack the jargon. Yeah, no, sorry. I think that's really important. And I try to be pretty good about unpacking the jargon too, but sometimes it slips out. For sure. It's a whole other language. But there was this arbitrage. And I think we've defined that on the show before when all this fiasco was happening in Washington. I kept saying like, no, it's not a time to sell bonds. It's time to buy bonds. I bought a bunch of bonds because yields were awesome because all of a sudden they became higher based on this. But the likelihood of the U.S. not paying back was like negative. So 
I thought it was a great buying opportunity. I think so too. Yeah. And, you know, especially for the first time in my living memory, and I think a lot of adults living memory, you can actually get like a half decent return on cash, which is kind of awesome. I grew up almost thinking that you had to be invested in stocks if you were ever going to, let's say, hit retirement or, you know, save for any future goal because you're working so hard to save your money. And then you're looking at a 0.1% interest rate. That's just so discouraging. And, you know, everything you learn about compounding your investments kind of goes out the drain when you don't have a decent interest rate. And to your point, you know, we saw this spike in interest rates on treasury bonds that the U.S. government issues, especially around the time of this whole debt ceiling fiasco earlier this year. And they've actually continued to rise because the Federal Reserve has kept pushing rates up to fight inflation. But, you know, you can buy one year treasury bonds or three month treasury bonds that are paying, you know, four to five percent interest rates. And especially as inflation comes down, that real return, which is the difference between, you know, the interest rate you're getting and the inflation rate, that becomes more and more meaningful to everyday people trying to save their money. Like inflation adjusted. Exactly. Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, Self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much-needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. Talk about writing a book when interest rates were at zero. And I talked about how savings was bleh, CDs were bleh, bonds were bleh. You have to invest in the stock market. Now I'm like, do I have to go back and rewrite these books based on interest rates changing as you and I grew up at a time where they were on the floor? Artificially so. That's not how it has been historically. But I'm like, I have to rewrite Rich Bitch. Yeah. It changes everything. I know. Yeah. I mean, I've written, I haven't written a whole book, but I've definitely written articles and things in the past where it's like, even just like thinking about the discount rate and the rate of return that you could reasonably get by investing in the stock market or just, you know, towards any of your savings goals, a lot of that has been pushed up 
And so, you know, for all the big picture stuff, we talk about, you know, chaos at the treasury market and, you know, debt ceiling standoff and, you know, all of this kind of political and big picture macroeconomic drama that's unfolding. I think the really simple takeaway that you made is for most people, bank savings rates and rates they can get on bonds are for the first time in their lives, really meaningful. And that's a profound thing. And, you know, it comes with this weird trade-off where you may be kind of crimping economic growth. The U.S. economy has actually stayed pretty strong this year, despite the Fed raising interest rates a lot last year. But at least in theory, you know, raising interest rates is supposed to slow the economy and result in more job loss. But it also means that you can save more money. Yeah, for sure. And you can get more than, you know, you and I have talked about for years by putting your money in a savings account. And that's the calculus that, you know, ideally folks would have a baseline of financial literacy to be able to change based on these factors like interest rates and inflation. But yes, it's a major, major shift as you're planning out finances. I'm off my soapbox, we talk about this literally every day. Okay, let's <laughs> double click though, Sean, on the downgrade part of this. So to put it simply, the banks got the downgrade because of funding risks, lower profitability, maybe like ghosts of SVB crash past. Can you unpack it a little bit more and what's going on with the banks? Yeah. So this spring was really an eventful time, kind of looking back. May, we were talking about this debt ceiling standoff, but if you flash back a couple months before that in March, we had this whole Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank blow up. And that really, you know, put the banking system on a lot of people's radars for the first time in, I don't know, 15 years since the great financial crisis. I don't really think big banks or even small banks were on people's mind at that time. But really, my takeaway from that fiasco is that it opened people's eyes to we live in the digital era. And that sounds so obvious. And I hate saying it because it sounds so stupid to say. But really, I think, you know, for decades, we'd had this kind of reality where people had these long term relationships with their banks. And, you know, especially live in a small town, you have the local bank franchise and you go down to the store and you get a small business loan or you get a mortgage and, you know, kind of this like quintessential American dream. And people would, you know, I know my parents and certainly my grandparents, pretty much use the same bank their entire lives. And what happened with SVB is, I think you said funding, and, and that's exactly what the problem was. These banks fund themselves by deposits. And so if they know that you're most likely going to be a bank customer for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, a whole lifetime, whatever, that gives them a lot of flexibility with how they can invest and lend out money. And ultimately, that allows them to basically be more profitable if they can lend money for longer periods of time. And this whole SVB fiasco revealed that, okay, like I said, the digital era is here and people do not have loyalty to their banks. I have multiple bank accounts on several apps on my phone and I would easily just take money out of one account and put it in another account, you know, with a couple clicks of a button just to earn a higher interest rate. And I have no lasting loyalty to any of the banks that I've probably ever banked with. And, you know, the result of that was that a whole lot of people took out their money in 20 or 30 minutes. And so a bank run that might have previously ran, you know, over two or three weeks or months happened in the time span of a weekend or even just a few hours. And so, you know, that really reduces the response time that banks have to, you know, these quote unquote bank runs where everybody's trying to withdraw their money at the same time. And so, you know, as we move forward a couple months, it seems like the worst of that panic has kind of passed. But really the takeaway is, okay, banks are in this new regime, right? They can't expect 
that people are going to have the same type of loyalty that they always did. And if there's less loyalty and there's less trust in the bank, or you know, people can more easily withdraw their money, you know, the result of that is banks probably have to lend on shorter time horizons and be a lot more conservative. And that also means they're going to be a lot less profitable. And so that's really why I think you saw a lot of these, especially these small and mid-sized banks get downgraded is because their prospects for being profitable in the future, people realize that that's really just a lot different now. And then you add in the fact that there's speculations of a recession in 2024 and you know probably some more regulations coming as a result of the Silicon Valley banking crisis where regulators are probably going to tell banks that they have to hold more capital against the loans they make. And to kind of break through the jargon there, that basically just means they have to lend less to my point of them being more conservative. So banks are probably going to be a lot less profitable in the future. And if you're not one of the big, too big to fail banks that's sort of backstopped by the government, you have some really tough questions to answer going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for following the money trail and how that credit rating or downgrade affects a person because it does just going in to get a loan. And this is not breaking news. Banks do not just keep your money in like beautiful little bundles in the vault in the back. They're using your money that you deposit. If I can say like a little bit about myself, you know, I started out studying finance and I thought, you know, oh, you know, I know how the financial system works. I studied finance. I'm a genius with money and, you know, kind of that college arrogance. But then, you know, I realized like, okay, there's a lot of really practical things I don't know about the real world, even though I had, you know, let's say a finance degree. I don't really know how banks work. I don't know how to get a mortgage. I barely even know what the term mortgage means. And there are a lot of these like really basic questions about economics and finance that I struggled to connect the dots for. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way. And I know I was too afraid to ask questions that seem so obvious, like, okay, wait, how does a bank work? You know, we hear this term like fractional reserve banking, but like, what does that actually mean? And to your point, you know, they're taking your money and they're lending it out. They're not just keeping it. And so, you know, I feel like for the last five or six years of my life, I've been on this journey just to answer as many of those obvious, dumb questions and follow the rabbit hole as far as I can. So I can feel like, okay, I really understand like this is what banks are doing with my money when I give it to them. And I don't think everybody cares about that. But as a fellow finance nerd, I find it really interesting and it really helps me shape the world around me and feel like I I understand what's going on. And I have taken a lot of pleasure with trying to explain those basic questions, those dumb questions that I've spent so many hours researching myself to share those with other people. And thank you so much for doing that. Obviously, a man after my own personal finance nerd heart. (laughs) And thank you for also being vulnerable about that. You know, studying finance doesn't mean you're a finance genius. It takes a little time, I guess, to realize that and some humility. But I think that's an important thing to, you know, say they're not dumb questions. You literally paid to make your brain supposedly smarter about finances. And these basic concepts aren't taught to any of us. It's really frustrating and disappointing that the mainstream financial world is so exclusionary with the jargon and and language they use. And I don't know what that is, but when you actually get pretty deep into studying finance and economics and money, you realize that a lot of the things they're talking about are really simple. Like These are not crazy abstract concepts, but when you string along a series of jargon, it sounds like you're saying something really intelligent when Actually, you're just saying when borrowing a loan for a car is cheaper, more people are going to do that. It's like, oh, yeah, when you said it like that, that's a lot more obvious. And I know, too, with my own self, like 
I used to take a lot of pleasure in feeling like I was invested in these really fancy things. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I got this finance degree and, you know, now I'm invested in Southeast Asian and I'm, you know, invested in their stocks or I'm invested in bonds from Eastern Europe, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, I would do these abstract things. And then I realized like, okay, I'm just losing money because I don't really know what I'm doing. And it would be way more simple to just buy Apple stock, buy treasury bonds, do the S&P 500 index fund, all of that really basic stuff. And I realized like, okay, I'm investing almost for my own ego. Like I kind of like how it feels to be able to tell people that, yeah, I had in uranium and people are like, wow, what? I didn't even know you could do that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I did it. And I lost 20% on it, but I did it, you know? And so I don't know, from the exclusionary jargon to maybe appealing to your own ego, there's so many traps that I think the financial world can kind of put you down and really it just comes down to keeping things simple and, and just being honest with your learning and, and what you want and your goals and all that good stuff. So, Sean, are you a recovered or recovering finance bro? <laughs> I think I am. I think I am a recovering finance bro. Yeah, I had a super traditional finance job and I was doing, God forbid to say it, the CFA, which stands for Chartered Financial Analyst, and I passed the level one and I was really proud of that. And it's like 300 hours of studying and all of that stuff. But it's like, basically, it's just an exam that teaches you how to speak Wall Street. People ask me, what was it? I was like, I spent 300 hours learning how to be a finance bro, learning how to use jargon that makes me seem smarter than you or, you know, however you, you want to think about it. So I spent so much time thinking that I was so smart and so savvy because I was working at, you know, some big finance company or doing the CFA and all that good stuff. And reality, I, I realized that I was just kind of feeling my own ego and I wasn't really doing myself any favors. So I think recovering finance bro is a good way to put it. Yeah. And those tests, I went through the CFP ones. I mean, you also don't use them. They're not practical. Like you have tools and terminals or whatever to do that. So I would say everyone will pay the same amount at the School of Hard Knocks because that's literally the only school I've found that teaches personal finance, a finance bro and your favorite former poetry major. We spent the same (laughs) amount on that part of our brain. So former finance bro, I end our episodes by asking our guests for one piece of money advice. Listeners can take straight to the bank. So do you have just one? I know you have a zillion, but you just have one tip that money rehabbers can use to invest, save for retirement budget. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a big theme for your show and I'm going to steal this from Warren Buffett, but I think the best investment you can make is to invest in yourself. So keep listening to Money Rehab. Maybe we might just let it find great books to read and just 30 minutes a day of really dedicated and focused learning will compound, to use a finance term, maybe it will change your life. For the last five years, that's been my goal is to do at least 30 minutes. Fortunately, I've been able to normally do more than 30 minutes a day, but at least 30 minutes a day of just really deep learning about something you're not familiar with and that will compound and it really will change your life. And Warren, I'm just in my mind, we're on a first name basis. Warren also said in his own will to his wife to put a majority of his money in low cost S&P 500 index funds, not like credit default swaps or Portuguese bonds or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And not uranium or, you know, whatever it is, just put in the S&P 500 or, you know, maybe diversify a little bit, but that's a pretty good starting point. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. 
Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.